You're listening to the Magnum version of the Savage Lovecast at savage.love. If you're stuck in a relationship quandary, or if you're looking for sexual harmony, First, the bad news. And I'm sorry, I know you don't come here for the news, good or bad. There are a million news podcasts out there. There are still newspapers out there, news websites, news feeds on Twitter. The news is nearly unavoidable. And people turn to podcasts like mine, a nice little show about sex and relationships, the relationships other people are in, the sex other people are having, for a distraction. Unless it's your question that gets on the show and then you're here for the advice. But I know people come here, people listen to me, to avoid the news, if only for a little bit. But I'm kind of a news junkie myself, and when the news is as bad as the news is right now, it affects me, as I'm sure it affects you. I've been really depressed the last couple of weeks. I've been doing self-care, and my self-care routines probably look a little different than yours, but whatever your self-care routine looks like, I hope you're making some time for it. Anyway, I'm sure I don't need to tell you what's going on in Ukraine, but I want to acknowledge it because my heart aches right now for the brave people of Ukraine. My heart also aches a little bit for the many Russians I've met over the years who don't want to live under a dictator. And then there's the bad news for queer people coming out of Texas and Florida. In Texas, the governor, the odious governor, Greg Abbott, has declared that gender-affirming care for trans kids is child abuse and is now threatening the parents of trans kids who provide that kind of care to their kids with prosecution and threatening to take their kids away. And at the same time, in Florida, a don't-say-gay bill is making its way through the Republican-controlled state legislature there and will pass, and it will be signed into law by Florida's equally odious Governor Ron DeSantis. This bill, once it becomes law, would ban discussion of sexual orientation or gender identity in Florida schools. One version of the bill that may yet pass requires schools to out gay kids to their parents. If a kid at school comes out to some friends and that gets back to school administration, to teachers, they have to tell the parents. Denying trans kids treatment they need, that'll kill trans kids. Outing gay kids to their parents, parents who may not be supportive parents who may be the worst bullies in a gay kid's life, that'll get gay kids killed. And that's the goal here. Let's not pretend dead queer kids aren't collateral damage when you attack trans kids or pass don't say gay bills that require schools to out vulnerable gay kids to their parents who may not be supportive. This shit has been going on for decades, centuries. Make queer people as miserable as humanly possible ensure that we're estranged from our families, convince us that a white-bearded male god exists, which he doesn't, and then convince us that that guy god hates us, which he doesn't, because that guy god doesn't exist. And guys, gods or not, who don't exist, can't hate us. And then point to the pile of dead gay kids. Point to the gay kids and queer kids and trans kids that you murdered and insist that pile of bodies is proof the gay lifestyle is dangerous. Like I said, the news is bad, but this is a sex and relationship podcast. You come here to escape the news, and I want to end on an up note here before we get to the show, and I do have some good news to share. Ladies and gentlemen, America frequently disappoints, but Americans came 
through, I am delighted to say, Rule 34 is back in effect. Rule 34, if it exists or can be imagined, there is internet porn of it. At the top of last week's show, I talked about ice fishing, which exists. It's a combo of two terrible things, freezing temperatures and fishing. Not a subject most sex advice podcasts would tackle, but a mayor in a town in Ohio was worried that allowing ice fishing on its lake meant allowing ice fishing huts, and ice fishing huts would bring prostitution to town. Because if there's anything I know about sex workers, it's that no sex worker would ever turn down the chance to drive to the middle of nowhere and walk out into the middle of a frozen lake to meet a man with a chainsaw. The chainsaw being what ice fishermen use to carve holes in the ice. Holes that are good for fishing through, also good for hiding a body in. Yeah, that's definitely an outcall that no sex worker would pass on. Anyway, I pointed out that there was no ice fishing porn on the internet that I could find. Rule 34 was at risk of being disproven. So I laid down a challenge to my listeners, find or make some ice fishing porn immediately and save Rule 34. You guys came through. Thank you to Dan, Abigail, Joe, Kai, Sarah, Philip, Brian, Mark, Jose, Christian, Christopher, and everyone else who, well, didn't make ice fishing porn, but sent me the link to the one and only example of ice fishing porn that exists on the internet. I fucked Layla in my ice fishing tent can be viewed right now on Pornhub. It's 11 minutes long, which is an eternity in porn. And it opens with a woman, presumably Layla, in a pink jacket and a beige knit hat, bent over a folding chair in an ice fishing hut, being fucked by a guy, a ginger guy, pretty hot with a beard, who is wearing, for some inexplicable reason, a glow-in-the-dark green bracelet. There are beers, folding chairs, ice. I didn't see the chainsaw, but I assume it's there somewhere. And a sad propane tank in the corner for warmth. Here's the thing, though. I Fucked Layla in My Ice Fishing Tent was posted six months ago by Layla, and since ice fishing has existed forever, at least as long as Minnesota has existed and Wisconsin has existed and Ohio has existed, that means Rule 34 has only been in full force for the last six months. I'm not going to describe the action. You can go to Pornhub right now and watch for yourself, unless you're in Russia. Because last week, immediately after Russia invaded Ukraine, Pornhub blocked access to its website and all the porn on it, including I Fucked Layla in My Ice Fishing Tent, to everyone in Russia. Which means the pornographers at Pornhub did the right thing right away, banning Russians from masturbation. Whereas it took FIFA, the famously corrupt organization that runs world soccer, more than a week to do the right thing and ban Russian teams from competition. So, yeah, that goal gets awarded to the pornographers. All right, coming up on this week's show, a couple of very different dom-sub relationships to talk about. And on the Magnum, I chat with my pediatrician pal, Dr. Daniel Summers, about the washing of hands and the eating of ass. Why are we encouraged to do the former, wash those hands when we are also engaging in the latter, eating those asses? But first, a cautionary tale about starting off on the wrong foot when meeting your new boyfriend's mother. Hey, Dan, 39-year-old cis woman dating a man on the West Coast. My boyfriend's mom has very likely just seen one of my nudes. I was gifted by him one of those digital picture frames, 
and was unaware that there was a social aspect to it with photo sharing. (laughs) One of my friends called me and apparently got a notification that I'd uploaded a photo to his frame. He has an office frame alone in a private office, and I just thought I'd send him one as like a joke there that would show up and he'd delete it. That is pretty much what happened, except instead of deleting it, he cropped it, and it only cropped it, I guess, on the frame and not in the app. Where my friend got the notification, so did he, and so does mom, we think. And so she, it seems like she probably saw it. Apparently, she had lunch with his sister today and said something vaguely about the digital picture frame and me. So I don't really know what to do here. Uh, they're very conservative, his parents, to the point where I guess his dad is kind of a pastor. They're very active in the evangelical church. And I don't know what to do. His sister might do some reconnaissance, but how do I come back from this? I haven't met her yet. I'm the first person he's dated since he's been divorced. So this ain't looking good. So what happened? Did you find out if your potential future mother-in-law saw this nude of you? Uh, I did. The good news is his sister came up with kind of a creative way to ask and got it out of her that she did not. So that crisis is averted. However, I have since found out his aunt, his uncle, his grandpa, his cousins are also on the picture frame, also religious, and I don't know if they saw, and I don't think we can ask. Okay, so this is too many people. This is not your problem. You just started dating this dude, right? He's the one who pushed this photo out. I don't understand this technology at all, but he pushed this photo out in such a way that he accidentally shared it himself with all of these people. It's not your problem. It's not your, you did? Well, okay, so it's a digital picture frame. I didn't realize it had like a social aspect to it. So when I put up the frame on his, or I put the photo on his frame, everyone who is like, is friends with that frame got a notification that I uploaded a photo oh my to God. it. Okay, this internet of things makes me crazy. My dirty pictures are in the fridge. That's what we're coming to. Oh my God, his, his toaster is connected to the internet and I shared my dirty pictures and they popped out of the toaster with his mom's fucking bagel. Oh my God. Yes. All right. Yes, that's what happened. Okay, so it's still not your problem to solve. You <gasps> attempted to share a dirty photo with him. He is so stupid, I guess, as to have a frame connected to <laughs> his entire family that women he's just started dating can upload a photo to without realizing that that one frame of his is stupidly connected to his entire religious family. And so a nude guy yeah. that you, a nude that someone intended to share with him privately was shared publicly again, not because you're so careless or reckless, but because he's so stupid as to have this internet enabled picture frame that like, taps right into the cerebral cortex of his entire religious family. He's the one who's got to go solve this. He's the one who's got to go say, hey, my girlfriend didn't know that this picture frame on my desk went to everybody. And so that's my bad for not telling her that. She thought it was private. So yeah, let's all stuff this down the memory hole and pretend this didn't happen. But this is definitely a thing that adults do. They share dirty pictures. Even religious people talk about doing this. You can find Christian sex advice, books and podcasts and blogs 
where people talk about it's how okay for, you know, betrothed or married people to share digital photographs, to arouse desire within the bounds of holy matrimony. So it's not something that religious people don't do, but mm. it's not your job to run interference with his family. It's his job. Okay, good. I like that. I like this answer very much. I mean, we're going on a trip with his entire family in a couple months. So hopefully he can do that before then would be great. And you know what? I kind of been there. Like Tara and I had a bunch of photographs that we put like on a high shelf in the apartment that we shared alone. And his parents came to visit. And then we realized after they left that those photographs were sitting there. (gasps) And my feeling always was based on how I was treated for about like the next five years that they saw those photographs that, you know, when they were home alone and we were out to dinner or whatever, you know, they saw those photographs, uh, and blamed me for them. And I did seem to be the more active participant in those photographs, I have to say. (laughs) And eventually, you know, sometimes that let's not talk about it. Let's just pretend that didn't happen is the right way to go. Like you could have an endless family process session where you pick apart and and then, you know, make an audio tape and send it to me. You pick apart how these fucking frames work. I still don't understand. And you pick apart. (laughs) I don't understand either. Exactly what happened and justify sending dirty pictures to your new boyfriend, which you shouldn't have to justify. Or you can just ignore it and stuff it down the memory hole and pretend not to know what they might know and they pretend not to know what they might know or do know and you just get on with it. That's what we did. Worked for us. I would encourage you and your boyfriend to do that. But again, if anybody has to fix this problem, run interference with this family, go clean up this mess, it ain't you, it's him. And throw the frame away. Okay. Throw the frame away. Oh, I know, right? Yeah, that's that's gone. That's going away. <laughs> All right. Great talking with you. <laughs> Thanks, Dan. Bye. Hi, Dan. Pansexual cisgender woman calling from California with a question related to kink and romantic feelings. I recently got out of a relationship uh, that had been ending for a while, but I finally decided to cut off all contact with my ex. And since then, I've been enjoying being single um, exploring a lot of things that I was interested in exploring before, like ethical non-monogamy and kink that I wasn't able to explore before because my last partner wasn't interested in it. Since being single, I've met someone who is older and we've kind of naturally fallen into these DDLG subdom roles. There's about a nine-year age gap. And I think we, after the first time we hooked up, we immediately realized that we were both into this kink and have been doing a lot of research together, talking about it and figuring out what works best for us. Um, And I'm really, really excited about it. So far, it's been going really well. But we have had a conversation of just what we're looking for in terms of romantic relationships. And they've made it very clear that they aren't interested in a romantic relationship anytime soon. And because I just got out of a relationship less than two months ago, I definitely need some time before I'm ready to hop into another relationship. The thing is, I have a history of falling for every single person I fuck. That's a little bit of an over-exaggeration, but I do tend to have a hard time separating romantic feelings from sexual feelings. And I already feel myself starting to like this person. I think we get along really well. 
This is the most communicative relationship I've had with any partner, but specifically a sexual partner. I'm learning a lot from them and I really just enjoy their company. So I can see myself catching romantic feelings for them if we continue what we've been doing, which is talking almost every day, like via text or, you know, a call on the lunch break, seeing each other, I would say pretty regularly. And yeah, I don't know. I think I just am trying to be very cautious because I really want to explore the DDLG dynamic and go on this kink adventure with them, but also want to avoid getting hurt. So wondering if you have any suggestions or tips for how to keep a kink dynamic or relationship strictly kinky and avoid bringing romance into it. If you want to avoid getting hurt, don't date anybody. Don't leave the house and don't get in and out of the tub if you stay at home alone. Most people who injure themselves at home, who hurt themselves at home, do so getting in and out of the tub. So if you don't want to get hurt, don't date anybody, but also don't bathe. But if you don't date people, if you don't put yourself out there, if you don't risk potential hurt at the hands of a romantic partner, unintentional emotional pain, not erotic pain in the context of a kinky dynamic, then what do you got? Well, then you have the certain hurt, the definite pain of avoidable isolation, of loneliness, of feeling sexually unfulfilled, sexually frustrated. So yeah, that seems nuts to isolate yourself, to avoid potential hurt at the hands of a romantic partner, to avoid someone else inflicting that pain on you. Then you stay at home alone and you inflict the pain of loneliness and isolation on yourself. That doesn't make any sense. So you're going to have to get out there and date. And I don't need to tell you that. You're already out there dating and you're anxious. You're catching feelings for this person, which is normal and good, potentially. It's good to catch feelings for someone. You should, we all should have feelings for our sexual partners. It doesn't mean we have to have romantic feelings. It doesn't mean we have to have, you know, we don't have to be looking forward to a lifetime together with that person, but we should have some feeling for and feeling toward our romantic partners. And that's not a bug or a threat. That's a feature. That's a good thing. It does, however, make you feel more at risk for emotional pain. If you're opening up to this guy and you really, really like him and you've only known him for a few weeks or a couple of months and it ends for any of the reasons that brand new relationships can end and sometimes do end, well, that'll suck and you'll be hurt, but you'll pull yourself back together and you'll get back on your feet and you'll find somebody else to explore. Dom sub, kink, DD, LG, polyamory with after that person has exited your life and after you've had a little time to get over the pain. God, romantic pain is this thing that just looms so large in people's fears. And yet all around us, there are examples, including examples in our own lives, where we've seen people get their hearts stomped on, think they're going to die. They don't die. They get over it. They recover. And then they get into a new relationship with someone else, a happy relationship, a relationship that they find fulfilling. And then they look back on the relationship that ended, look back on that pain at the loss of that person. And yeah, they're not grieving it anymore because if they hadn't lost that person who dumped them 
a year ago or two years ago, they wouldn't be with the wonderful person they're with now. And somehow, despite all the examples all around us, the lives of our friends, family members, even our parents, even examples in our own life, we can't somehow project ourselves into a future where we're able to imagine recovering from the broken heart that we risk when we get into a new relationship with a person. All right, that was a long digression. As for sustaining the kink dynamic in the context of a long-term relationship or a relationship that's becoming more intimate over time, there's no one right way to do kink. There are some people into DS play who, after a conversation about consent and boundaries and limits and safety, don't want to have any more interactions with the person who's dominating them or the person who's submitting to them because that might interfere with their ability to, you know, inhabit the role of the snarling dom or the cringing sub. And this person that they're playing with, only knowing them as that person, as that dominant or as that submissive, for some people into DS play, it makes it feel more real and easier to tap into those feelings of dominance and submission if the person they're playing with doesn't know them, doesn't know their hopes, their fears, their work dramas, their family dramas, only knows them as this dom or this sub. Other people who are into kink are able to fold it into a relationship, actually find it more enjoyable to have kink in the context of a relationship. And in some ways, kinkier, you know, somebody that only knows you as a sub who strings you up and flogs you in a safe and consensual, mutually pleasurable way, but an intense way, and isn't invested in you as a person beyond being their sub and their victim. Yeah, that's pretty fucking kinky. And for some people, that's sexier as kink goes others to be strung up and flogged by not a stranger to you, but someone who knows you and loves you and yet is doing this terrible thing to you that adds a whole nother kind of emotional mindfuck dynamic kind of delicious perversity to that play in the context of the ongoing intimate romantic relationship. Which kind of DS works for you? DS in the context of I don't know you other than as my dom or DS in the context of we're in a relationship and we know and love each other. Which works for you is something that you will figure out in time as you explore and play and get to know yourself better and what works for you better. And you don't have to choose one or the other. There are people who have good DS kink dynamics in the context of their long-term romantic, committed relationships and occasionally enjoy DS play with someone who only knows them as a dom or a sub. So you don't have to pick one or the other. You can have some of both, particularly if it's going to be an open relationship, which is what you said at the very beginning of your call. You wanted polyamory. Hey, Dan. My husband and I have been together for 16 years. We have four young kids, two bio, two adopted, and an amazing life together. That said, I'm not in a great headspace right now. I've been a stay-at-home mom for 12 years, and two of my kiddos are homeschooled and have special needs. I've gained a ton of weight, and I'm quite anxious and depressed these days. The pandemic has done a real number on me. This month, my husband lost his grandmother and traveled with our 12-year-old to his hometown for a funeral. In advance of the trip, he reconnected with his closest friend in the area, who also happens to have been his high school girlfriend. I was home feeling a little irrationally jealous and insecure, 
and also feeling mad at myself for knowing in my intellectual brain that he has absolutely no intention of running off with this woman. But honestly, she is really cool. <laughs> She's single, a lawyer, in good shape, loves dogs, loves playing video games. She's vivacious and fun and sweet and smart. She's really the whole package. I also happen to know that he kind of regretted breaking up with her back in the day. He didn't have a good reason to do so. And back when we got married, he was totally honest with me in saying that, yeah, he did sometimes think about what his life would be like if they had stayed together. So I've had that tickling the back of my head every time they have interacted over the years. It turns out, though, after a series of conversations since he's been home, that he actually does still have feelings for her. And if he had permission from me, he actually would want to pursue a polyamorous romantic relationship with her, if that's something that she and I would both want to. They've been texting each other nonstop since he got home. And when I realized just how much time and attention he was devoting to communicating with her, I pressed him on it. He's really psyched to have reconnected with her, is super happy to invite her back into his life, but also has the self-awareness to see that a platonic friendship with her is not ever going to really satisfy the feelings he has for her. And he would really love for me to be cool with it. <sighs> I've been a long, long time listener to the podcast, and so we've had many conversations about ethical non-monogamy over the years. Up to this point, neither of us have felt driven to open our relationship up, but we've always agreed that both would much rather an open dialogue about our feelings if we're feeling drawn to other people, and that if someday we might want or need to open our monogamous relationship, it's on the table. That said, <laughs> we're in a sort of difficult position right now. I'm not feeling good enough about myself to allow him space to pursue someone else romantically. I just lack the self-confidence, <laughs> but I feel like that is required there. Our home is full of chaos and small children, and I already feel like our time for each other is stretched incredibly thin. To his credit, he is communicative and honest and prioritizes our marriage and our family above everything else. He's not unhappy with our lives. He's willing to dial back the communication with her if that's what I need right now. And that's what I asked him to do for at least a few more years until we don't have the chaos of four young children in the house and maybe the pandemic can shift to where I can regain some semblance of mental health. But I still feel absolutely horrible and torn, like I'm removing a potentially enormous source of joy for him in his life. If it were a matter of us all being friends and hanging out and occasionally he'd want to haul past to sleep with her or even have a threesome with her, I feel like that's something I could enthusiastically support. But that's not what he's asking for. It's not what's in his heart. He had a conversation with her over text to let her know that he's going to need to pull back a bit because after they reconnected, he was finding a bunch of old feelings arose in him and I'm not in a headspace where I can consent to him continuing to crush on her so intensely. She was super cool about it, but didn't say one way or another how she feels, just that she was impressed with our communication skills, thinks I'm awesome, and wouldn't ever want to threaten our marriage. And she would be happy to support him however she can to encourage exclusively platonic friendship with her. Is there any chance you could help me reframe this? Am I handling this okay? You need to take your husband's yes for an answer. You told him what you needed, which is shutting this down that you're not in a place with four young children at home and you being the full-time stay-at-home parent and two of those children being special needs and in the midst of still this ongoing pandemic, it's not the right time for you to contemplate opening up the relationship, making room in the relationship, making room in your marriage for your husband to have 
another partner. You need his full focus and attention on the family he chose to create with you. And you made that clear to him and he agreed. He said, yes, yes, I will shut this down. Yes, I will tell this other woman uh, that I have these feelings for and this connection with that I can't be available to her now. You put it out there that maybe in a few years, maybe when we're really through this pandemic, past this pandemic, maybe when your kids are older and you're not in this position where you are A, exhausted, and B, really dependent on your husband financially, emotionally, in every way, dependent on his support and and, and needing his full attention to keep this family going and to raise the kids that he had with you. You put that all out there. You said that to him. He heard you. He shut it down. He said, yes. He said, yes, you're right. Yes, I will put a stop to this. And you feel bad. Don't feel bad that he said yes to you. Don't feel bad about prioritizing not just yourself here, but your family, which includes your husband, but also the needs, safety, and security of your children. That is the right thing to do. And your husband recognizes that it's the right thing to do and he's doing it. Don't project yourself into his experience and feel his feelings for him and feel sad for him or as if you were him because he can't have everything that he wants right now. Because he can't. And he shouldn't be able to have everything that he wants right now because you both together have so much on your plate right now and you need to be focused and he needs to be focused on this family that he created with you and the needs of all four of your children. It is true. It's a cliche of people in open relationships and a lot of people in, you know, organized swinging that people come to it. Most heterosexual couples come to it later in life when their children are grown. You're obviously open to this possibility at some point in the future. And so your husband can live in hope. This woman has been out there kind of waiting in the wings, I guess, still open to getting with your husband, even though he's married to someone else. Her mind is open to the possibility of some sort of polyamorous relationship where you're the primary partner. Okay, well, if she's waited this long, she can wait however much longer she might need to wait. And your husband can wait however much longer he might need to wait. Another three years, five years, 10 years, You two can work on what that number might be together. I think it's highly likely that at some point in the future, you two together as a team, as a couple, will revisit this, this discussion about potentially opening up your marriage. And not just for him, not just on his side, but also potentially for you at a time when you're under less stress from the pandemic and less stress from the responsibilities of Raising these four kids and raising these four kids is not just your responsibility. It's his responsibility too. Hi, Dan. I'm a bit of a late bloomer when it comes to sex and relationships, but I've been building my confidence and experience and having fun through some random hookups where I take on a dominatrix role, usually involving some soft edging play. These are guys that I find online and I'm pretty upfront in my ad about just wanting to invite them over for some safe, no pressure fun. 
So I'm not posing it as a date. I'm upfront about it being a straight-up hookup. Finding the guys isn't an issue. My question is about what happens from the time they walk through the door until the time they're undressed and on my bed with their dick in my hands. Because after we start, it's fine. But I find the lead-up to it is so awkward. I welcome them in, and I'm inclined to chat for a few minutes so that we both feel safe and comfortable. But I don't really know where to go from there or how to initiate it, especially since we don't really know each other, and I'm supposed to take on the dominant role. It sort of ends up with me just saying something like, okay, you ready to do this? <laughs> so not sexy at all, but I guess it kind of works. So what's the best way to get from nice to meet you to having them in my bed in a safe but sexy way? So I'm going to assume you're doing your screw diligence here, that when you invite these guys over, you've really vetted them, you've talked to them, you have a good feeling about them, you know their real names, because it sounds like you're skipping that meet in public first and have a conversation before you invite somebody into your home part. So you're doing your screw diligence? Yes, doing my due diligence and making sure that they are who they say they are and that we're you know, being safe and we're consensual and we're doing everything um, right. Okay. I have tons of kinky gay friends who do this sort of thing, who show up at somebody's house for, you know, bondage and edging and whatever. And there is a thing that like gay kinksters do that I think may be a little more extreme than what you're interested in or up for. Sometimes when they arrive at the front door or the apartment door, there's handcuffs and a blindfold waiting for them just inside the door or outside the door and they handcuff, they put the blindfold on and then they handcuff their hands behind their back and then they knock on the door with their forehead, I guess, or their knee. <laughs> and, and so it gets the DS scene rolling without any of that, hey, how are you? Nice to meet you. Small talk that can really take the gas out of the, you know, the tension out of the DS stuff or require you to like, are you ready for this? Like you said, kind of make an awkward pivot. And you can get there. You make these awkward pivots and then you get there. But it can be hotter to save the not erotic chit-chat for after it's over. Okay. I, I like that idea. We can we can roll with that. Well, I, maybe not handcuffs and a blindfold at the door. But you can say <laughs> to guys before they come over, chit-chat ruins it for me. Like, you can just... The, you know, say exactly what you said to me, like a little bit of chit chat before we start ruins it for me. So from the moment you walk in the door, it has started. I will be ordering you around, ordering you into bed. If you show up and I feel uncomfortable, I'll call it off. If you feel uncomfortable, you can call it off. But if we're going to go forward, chit chat after Dom sub right away. Sure. Okay. Then you've given yourself permission to like say nothing about the weather, to not ask them how they are, to not ask <laughs> them how the bus ride was. You can right. just dive right in. And you've already chit-chatted with them, right? Yes, chit-chatted, made sure that they're, you know, who they say they are. So as long as we establish that comfort level going into it, um, yeah, I, I could be into something like that. Do you have video chats with people before they come over so that you know that their photos are accurate? I, I don't. <laughs> Maybe I should. <laughs> oh, have you ever had a case where somebody came over and their photos were 20 years old and someone else's? No, shockingly, that has not happened so far. Everybody's been who they said they are, and the photos were recent, so it's been okay so far. Great. I'm glad you're having uh, good experiences with this. And these are the sorts of things that sometimes make people feel a little, on someone else's behalf, concerned. You know, you're a woman inviting strange men you haven't met over to your apartment. But people do that safely all the time. It just requires... That due diligence or screw diligence, as I like to call it, really vetting people, knowing who they actually are, having their real names, their real phone numbers, and then trusting your gut and having a good feel about them. 
and giving yourself permission if they show up and you are not comfortable calling it off, not going through with it to avoid awkwardness, calling it off. Have you ever had to do that? Have you ever had to call it off? No, not so far, but I know that that's in my power and I can do that. Call it off if it's, if it's not right. It sounds like you're doing everything right. So zap the <laughs> inane pre-edging chit-chat and just tell them that's not on the menu, that they're going to show up and they're going to shut up and obey. And sometimes when it comes to this kind of DS play, it really a blindfold really helps because there's something about looking someone in the eye where you just feel like this pull of those social niceties and the little like chit-chatty thing that if you, they have a blindfold on and you're not making eye contact and you're leading them into your bedroom, if they feel comfortable wearing a blindfold, it really is a great workaround or really a great way to avoid getting sucked into that inane chit chat if you're not making eye contact, if they trust you enough to put that blindfold on right away. Yeah, I think that could be a good place to start. Give us a call. Let us know how it goes with the next guy. I will. Thank you so much for calling, Dan. It was great ta- chatting with you. Great talking with you, too. Hi, Dan. I'm a bisexual male living in, in the Midwest. And over the last few years, I've gotten more comfortable with telling people that I'm bisexual and but the thing is I don't usually like their response so uh, it's it's usually I never would have guessed that so I was wondering how can I go about making my wardrobe I guess more sexually ambiguous I like traditionally feminine patterns with traditionally masculine colors. When I picture this in my head, I picture something that Freddie Mercury would have worn in the 80s. Uh, Do you or any of your listeners know where I can find clothing like that? I'm going to toss this one out to the listeners because I am not a fashion plate. I was thinking this morning about the last time I bought a pair of shoes a t-shirt or jeans for myself. And that's all I wear are tennis shoes, jeans, and t-shirts. And it's been about 20 years. My husband took on those responsibilities for me a long time ago. I wouldn't even know where to start uh, with a clothing recommendation for what it is that you want, caller. Clothes that have traditionally masculine colors, but with cuts and styles associated traditionally with articles of clothing made for women or feminine people. So if there are other people out there who have a suggestion, you might want to jump in, give us a call and share. I do have one alternate suggestion for you. If what you want to avoid is that moment when you tell people that you're bisexual and they say clumsy, awkward things, uh, I don't know if you can ever avoid that moment. You know, when you tell somebody that you're gay or lesbian or bi or trans or pan or poly or kinky, that can make that other person feel uncomfortable. That now can make the other person worry about saying the wrong thing. And there's something about worrying that you might say the wrong thing that prompts us to say the wrong thing often. Yeah. When you tell people that you're bi, some of the responses you're going to get are going to be awkward in ways that you wish you could have avoided. And if what you want to do with your fashion choices is to signal to people that you're bi before you have to say anything, well, that's where pins come in. You can get bi flag pins. You can get bi pride pins that literally say bi pride on them. Uh, There are lots of pins, t-shirts, 
scarves even, hats that you can wear that do the coming out for you, even the first time that you encounter someone, so that your bisexuality was always a fact on the table before you got to know them. Uh, And then you're less likely if they knew you were bi from the start because you were signaling bi to them, they're less likely to say things like, oh, I never would have been able to tell, which a lot of straight heterosexual cisgender people feel is a compliment when someone comes out to them as queer and they say, well, I would never would have been able to guess. No one was asking you to guess. It's not a quiz. It's not a, it's not a game show. No one's asking you you to guess. And what a lot of straight, you know, cishet people think they're doing at that moment is telling you that, or they don't realize what they're doing at that moment is telling you that you're the kind of queer that they're comfortable with because you're not the kind of queer who's too queer, whose queerness reads. And they could have just gone on assuming they, they were able to assume that you were straight. They were able to assume that you were cis and, until you told them, they could have gone on making those assumptions, assumptions they were comfortable making. Uh, yeah. So when someone says something like that to you, I never been able to tell. It, they're not telling you something about you. They're telling you something about themselves, something that they need to think about, work on, work through, get over. And if anyone has something that they should feel uncomfortable about at that moment, when someone says something like that to you, it's them, caller, them, not you. Hi, Dan. I'm a straight cis guy with some, I guess, questions about science slash medicine. <laughs> so basically, there are like several things in like just everyday life that seem to defy my like basic understanding of like just like science and health and stuff like that. And uh, there are three of them that I have in mind that I wanted to ask you slash some kind of expert about. The first one is eating ass. I don't understand how I've been like raised my whole life to like wash my hands after going to the bathroom, presumably because like there might be like poop on my fingers if I if I take a shit. And then if I don't wash my hands, it could end up in my mouth and make me sick. Like that's always made sense to me. I'm 34 years old now. And yet all of a sudden, like, eating ass is, like, also a very common cultural phenomenon. And I'm like, is there not the obvious health risk there? Like, even if you clean out your butt, like, there's going to be trace amounts of poop in there somewhere. And, like, probably equivalent to whatever's vaguely on your fingers after taking a shit. So, like, I don't know. Those two things have always confused me. The second one, number two, is uh, toilet seats. This one is a little more intuitive to me. Like, I'm not, like, all about just, like, sitting my, like, my butt down on, like, a bare toilet seat in a public restroom. I normally either use the little, like, liners that they provide for you or, I like, put toilet paper down on there. But, like, then I think about it and I'm like, what? It's just, like, the back of my leg. Like, no one's got, like, pathogens on the back of their legs. Am I going to get, like, a skin disease? Is that what I'm worried about? So I just want to confirm or, like, ask you, like, is it possible to get, like, a skin disease? or even like some sort of like STI from a toilet seat in a public bathroom if it's not visibly like soiled in some way. And then lastly, probably the source of like all these questions for me is just like touching stuff with COVID. We all have lawn signs on our lawn that say like, I believe in science and all that stuff. And we also know that COVID is an airborne disease. And yet it's nothing but like hand sanitizer and like no handshakes everywhere. It just doesn't add up. 
So, yes, I would like some scientific information about all three of these, please. Joining me to help tackle this question, Dr. Daniel Summers, a pediatrician in private practice, and like all pediatricians, just another doctor in the pocket of big soap. Dr. Summers, you tell kids to wash their hands after they poop, even though kids are growing up in a world where adults eat ass. Is that not true? That is true. You speak truly. I do tell children to wash their hands after they poop. Why? You know, we this caller, he's just a straight cis guy asking some questions. He wants to know why. If we live in a world where people eat ass, do we tell people to wash their hands after they take a poop? Why? Because even though there are uh, sources of infection that you're going to find all throughout um, your day-to-day life, trying to limit obvious sources of infection is still a good idea. And so um, even though there's always potential for exposure when you eat out or, or uh, you know, go around the grocery store, washing your hands after you poop because that's going to be a pretty significant source of potential exposure to germs uh, in your own feces is a good idea. And you're preventing the exposure of other people to the germs in your feces as well by washing your hands. That is correct. There are any number of diseases that are spread through the evocatively named fecal oral route. And so you're wanting to do your best to not just give yourself something that's in your poop. Uh, you want to make sure that you're not spreading it to other people. Well, the fecal oral route that would seem most efficient, like the fecal oral superhighway, would seem to be eating ass. And yet people do that. People, no one on this call, not you, not me, people, people do that. <laughs> and yet not everyone's like limping around with uh, hepatitis A through Z. Why is that? And why, why would a sane person eat a butt, but then wash their hands or want to live in a world where other people wash their hands after they poop? Well, so if you're going to engage in oral sex with somebody else's anus, um, it's going to be important that, you know, that as much hygiene as you can employ in that situation is also going to be in play. So you want to make sure that the person has taken the time to bathe appropriately. You know, the reason that people do that is that it's enjoyable for them. And then uh, uh, something that broadly speaking, you would want people to have the freedom to engage in safely. But when you're, when you expose yourself to that part of somebody else's body, there are a couple of things that are going to be relevant. First of all, in order for you to get something from that person, that person has to have the the condition that you're you're worried about. So there's, you know, if they don't have GRDA, you're not going to get GRDA from them. If they don't have hepatitis A, you're not going to get hepatitis A from them. So uh, the first factor is whether or not they themselves have anything that they could transmit to you. Mm-hmm. The second factor is, and this is the big one, is um, different pathogens have different degrees of contagiousness, and it takes a certain amount of, not to be too graphic, a certain amount of ingested material in order for any particular pathogen to be transmitted. And so by washing thoroughly, even if you're going to get exposed to a small amount of fecal matter, um, it's going to be a a small enough amount that it shouldn't have the capacity to transmit anything. You know, that being said, it's still important to be at least a little bit careful, I I think, and, and you would ideally know a little bit about the person that you're with if you're, if you're concerned about it. Um, but those are the sort of broad parameters of, of anal oral sex that you'd want to think about. Yeah, I, have, I wrote columns decades ago where I said, I just don't think rimming is a first date activity. You kind of want to know uh, about someone's health in general before you eat their ass. But I think there's also a degree of informed consent here or a degree of you know, assumed risk. 
And, you know, if you want to assume the risk of eating the butt of a person that you have a pretty good feel about their health generally, that's one thing. You know, risking exposure to fecal matter at a time and place of your choosing, as opposed to somebody getting shit all over your Caesar salad because they didn't wash their hands before they prepared it and contracting hepatitis in that way. Yeah, I mean, there there are definitely, you know, if, if you're going to have outbreaks of something like hepatitis A is a, is a good example uh, which, by the way, is a vaccine-preventable illness, and so it's something to consider getting vaccinated against uh, if you haven't been. You know, that would be a situation where somebody employed poor hygiene, used the bathroom, and then transmitted it through inf- through food that they served to people. That's, that's a, a, a relatively common source of outbreaks. You, in that situation, you know, you don't know the risk that you're assuming. Presumably, if you're going to be rimming with somebody, at least you're walking into it with your eyes wide open, if you will. And... It- in defense of ass, <laughs> I, I would like to say that like people have it in the back of their heads somehow, even though their own asses typically don't work this way, that other people's asses are chocolate frozen yogurt dispensers in the back of a tasty free in, in Texas during a heat wave and a, and a power outage, just kind of constantly dripping. And it, it's not true. Like if you're regular and you got enough fiber in your diet and you're empty and you're clean that's safer than eating the Caesar salad prepared by somebody who took a shit and didn't wash their hands. I've got to tell you, that's a mental image. I don't think I'm ever going to get out of my mind now. Um, (laughs) Yeah. I mean, if somebody has really taken the appropriate steps to clean out as much as they possibly can appropriately, presumably the amount of material you might be ingesting is going to be substantially lower than somebody who uses the bathroom, doesn't wash their hands thoroughly, and then prepares your Caesar salad. So keep washing your hands is our message for this straight cis guy who's just asking some questions. That would be a take-home message that I would endorse in all circumstances. He had a couple of other questions. Toilet seat liners, why? Can you get an STI from a toilet seat? I will tell you that in my career, I have yet to see anyone who plausibly contracted an STI from a toilet seat. There are a couple of things though you can get from a toilet seat, at least in theory. Molluscum, which is a kind of uh, very easily transmissible skin condition. It's like a kind of bumps that people get. Sometimes from sitting in benches in locker rooms, you can contract molluscum. It's common among children, is it not? It is super common among children. And so anything that's going to be transmitted through direct skin-to-skin contact um, there is some potential where uh, a surface like a toilet seat could transmit it. You know, molluscum is benign. Um, it has sort of an, uh, an unpleasant cosmetic effect, but it's otherwise harmless. But, you know, that's pretty much the sum of it when it comes to the things you're going to get from a toilet seat. Okay, hand sanitizer. And I would add to the hand sanitizer list, not shaking hands. Early in the COVID-19 uh, pandemic, we weren't exactly sure how it was transmitted. And there was a fear that you could be transmitted through contact, not just airborne as we now know it to be primarily or almost entirely transmitted. Why are we still using hand sanitizer and why are people still bumping elbows? I think that it's probably still a good idea to maintain that just because even though it's very clear at this point that the the overwhelming majority of uh, COVID transmission is through uh, droplet or aerosol transmission, um, you know, somebody sneezing into their hand, then shaking your hand, and then you're touching your eye is still a pretty plausible mechanism for transmitting it. So uh, as of now, I'm still going to endorse the hand sanitizer and like finger guns, but no handshaking. I'm 
all for no handshaking ever again, because there are some people out there, as this caller himself is evidence of, who are looking for any justification they can latch onto not to wash their fucking hands after they take a shit, and I don't want to shake their hands. And so that means not... It is a revolting idea. And one of the benefits of, you know, the caution we all employed at the beginning of the pandemic around washing our hands, around using sanitizer, hand sanitizer, wearing masks, not shaking hands, is we didn't really have a flu epidemic. Oh, in the fall, as we typically, we had no flu. That seems to me, if for no, you know, even if COVID disappeared tomorrow, it seems to me we'd want to hang on to the hand sanitizer and the face masks on airplanes and the hand washing and the not handshaking to spare ourselves the flu. I certainly would like to see as an established norm, even whenever we emerge, whatever it's going to look like from the throes of the pandemic is things like wearing a mask outside the house when you have any kind of illness. I, I would I would support that being something that we just sort of ingrain as a social norm permanently because I think that it's an entirely worthwhile uh, habit to be in. Same with, you know, with hand sanitizer and shaking hands and all the rest of it. Certainly, if you're not feeling well, consider maintaining those no matter what status the pandemic it's is. It's a social norm in Asia, in Japan in particular, for people to wear masks if they're not feeling well, to protect the people around them. But we live in America, freedom, and freedom apparently freedom. now means your right to put other people at risk. Nothing is more important than my ability to avoid any inconvenience whatsoever, no matter how sick it may make you. Dr. Daniel Summers, pediatrician in private practice, a superstar on Twitter, also a kind of itinerant freelance health columnist with bylines all over. Follow him on Twitter, where his handle is at WFKARS. Dr. Summers, thank you so much. It was such a pleasure to speak with you. Hi, Dan. I'm a late 30s queer poly cis woman, and I recently got out of a relationship with an AFAB non-binary person who's the same age. Our relationship was romantic but non-sexual, a first for me. But I didn't know it was going to be a non-sexual relationship when it started. When we met, my partner told me that they wanted to take things slow and shared that they hadn't dated in several years. I eventually learned that it had actually been about 10 years since their last relationship ended, and they had never before dated or had sex or a relationship with a woman. These things gave me pause, but we got along well, and there was good energy in our conversations. And because the relationship wasn't exclusive, I didn't feel limited from having sex or physical intimacy with others, except by the pandemic. However, it got more complicated for me over time. After a few months, I started to suspect that they might be on the asexuality spectrum. It was also clear they had a complicated relationship to their body and some past trauma. I tried having conversations about our physical intimacy and got confusing information. They expressed regret about having shut down that area of their life for so long but also told me they weren't sure if sex was something that was really important to them anymore. I was patient for a while because I knew they were working with their therapist, and I guess I was hopeful that it might change. And regardless of whether we ever had sex, I wanted to support them in their self-discovery. I also noticed a strange performativity around queer desire. For example, they expressed a lot of enthusiasm about chocolate vulvas and vulva art made from plants, but I'm pretty sure they'd never interacted with another person's vulva. And I don't think they even want to. I know what genuine desire for pussy is like, and something about the way they express these things just felt really inauthentic to me. Sometimes I actually got the feeling that this person was afraid that their queer card would be taken away if it turned out they actually weren't interested in sex or attracted to cis female anatomy. 
I know how important sexual compatibility is, and I think it's important for people to be able to communicate their needs, desires, and boundaries. But what do you do if you're dealing with a person who simply doesn't know? What's the most compassionate way for someone who's more sexually experienced to talk about sex with someone who has a lot of fear and insecurity around it, but really isn't owning that? I'm a pretty direct communicator, and I wanted clarity about what we were doing, but I never wanted to pressure my partner for sex. And sometimes even bringing up the subject would cause them to shut down. I never got clarity, but I do know now that this person is pretty avoidant and probably isn't being very honest with themselves about who they are. Was it foolish of me to think the situation would change? And have you ever encountered someone who's performing queer desire in odd ways but doesn't seem to genuinely feel or experience it? What do you even do with that? I've certainly encountered guys who talked a really good game, who talked about you know, all the amazing blowjobs they'd given, all the incredible sexual experiences they'd had, all the ways in which they were going to rock my world if we went to bed together, who then, yeah, couldn't deliver on those promises. And it was impossible for me to know if it was them, you know, performing a, a kind of queer or gay desire and sometimes in odd and exaggerated ways and it was impossible for me to know if they didn't genuinely feel or experience queer desire and they were just playing it up because they wanted it to be perceived as more sexual or more sexually experienced than they were. Or if they just, in the end, weren't into me and I wasn't going to get those amazing blowjobs that they give because we weren't clicking. Huh. There's not, there wasn't, back when I had these experiences with these guys decades ago, there wasn't a lot of upside in being perceived to be gay uh, when you were not. There was so much downside in being known to be gay if you were, that there were lots of people running around, as there are still some today, not as many, who were closeted, who wanted to have the amazing blowjobs and the amazing gay sex and same-sex experiences, even same-sex relationships, gay relationships, but didn't want to shoulder the social cost or burden of being out, which could lose you a lot of friends and lose you jobs and lose you apartments and lose you the love and support of your family in ways that, although that still happens now, doesn't happen as much. And in certain circles, in certain cities, certain subcultures, actually being queer comes with a kind of cachet now that it didn't in all circles before. And you look at that that fact that, you know, queer confers a kind of uh, credibility. It can create a kind of community for yourself, an identity that other people admire or are invested in. You can see how that might attract some people to identify as queer or round themselves up to queer. It sounds like this woman is, you say, assigned female at birth and non-binary, perhaps on the asexuality spectrum, it may be that she's rounding herself up a bit to, uh, you know, the kind of queerness, you know, same-sex attracted queerness that might pull you in, pull in a female partner, uh, even if she hadn't fully experienced that, even if she wasn't fully, hadn't fully embraced it, and maybe never fully could. You know, if she's got trauma that she's working through, if she's on the asexuality spectrum, if she has a complicated relationship to her body, she may always be someone who's more comfortable with vulvas in theory than a vulva in her face in practice. Not because vulvas ick, but because sex isn't as appealing to her in reality as the 
you know, the theory of sex or even the reality of her being romantically attracted to same-sex partners. In addition, perhaps if she's bi and queer, attracted to partners of other genders and other sexes. Ultimately, we can't really know what's going on for them. I apologize if I called this person she or her in the past. You say they're non-binary. Ultimately, we can't know what's going on for them. And it's a fool's errand. It's uh, throwing more energy, you know, good money after bad. You're still investing in this relationship if you're trying to figure out why it couldn't work and trying to assign blame for why it couldn't work and questioning her queer credentials to explain why it couldn't work to yourself. And what I've learned after so many decades of being sexually active is that you can't know what you can't know. And you can't know what was going on in her head. You can't know what was going on for her. You can't know if she's just asexual, non-sexual, incapable of being sexual because of her trauma or complicated relationship to her body. And she doesn't share that with people because she wants a romantic partner. And they can't share that with people because they think that, you know, they want a romantic partner. And if they don't at least hold out the possibility that there may be sex in that relationship, that they won't attract someone romantically. Or maybe they hope that if they get into a romantic relationship that they'll be able to bridge the gap, uh, you know, overcome their trauma with the incentive of this person that's come into their life with these expectations. But rather than that person, you coming into their life with these expectations that helped them or motivated them to work through their trauma, it just made them feel more paralyzed. But Or maybe it was you. She just wasn't into your pussy, your vulva. You have to, at some point, shrug it off and just be zen about it and tell yourself Reassure yourself with what it is that you can for sure know. It couldn't work out. It didn't work out. It would never work out for you and this person. And you're out of this relationship now. Doesn't sound like they were abusive. Doesn't sound like you walked away from this relationship with anything other than questions. You didn't walk away from it with trauma. And so wish them well and go and find a partner or partners who want to be face down in your vulva In a way that this person either didn't want to or just simply couldn't and may never be able to. Your vulva or anyone else's vulva. Hi, Dan. I am dating, enjoying it, not looking for anything serious. I have met a guy recently who's super attractive, fun, nice. I am sober a year and a half and he drinks. And I have no problem with other people drinking unless it affects me directly. So the first night we hung out, he had some drinks. I said I didn't mind because I'm sure he's nervous. And I know me a few years ago would have definitely had a few drinks on the first date. So who am I to judge? The next night, we made plans to hang out. We had a great little roll around in bed. Didn't actually have sex. I thought he was gonna hang out. And we're going to maybe watch movies and just cuddle and stuff and make out. But he kind of was like, oh, I have friends that are in some other town. They really want me to come say hi. So he ended up leaving after a few hours. I wasn't super fussed because we had never laid out exactly what was going on. I just, I have ideas in my head and I guess he had others. And then we made plans to hang out the next night. And it was Super Bowl Sunday and he ended up drinking with his buddies all day. And we never saw each other. Do I give this guy another chance? 
I've been straight up with him. I'm like, I'm not so I'm sober. If you want to hang out with me, it has to be sober. I don't care what you do in your own time, though. Please let me know your thoughts. Huh. So that first night, he had a couple drinks. Nothing happened. Then you hung out again. And he had some drinks and then had to run out and meet friends. And then you had plans to hang out on Super Bowl Sunday. And he got too hammered to hang out with you. Yeah, he seems like a bad choice for you. Someone who's sober, someone who wants their partner, at least when their partner is with them, to also be sober. And someone who obviously, like anyone, would want to be prioritized, especially this early in a relationship. You know, you just met. This should be the going crazy infatuation stage, not the can you pencil me in stage. He left you the second time you hung out to go see other people. He had plans to hang out with you and he let the Super Bowl and his friends prevent you from following through with those plans, showing the fuck up when he told you he's going to show the fuck up. Seems to me you've already given him three chances and three strikes, three pitches, nice and clean and right over the plate and three strikes. I wouldn't Give him another at bat. I'm going to torture this sports metaphor. I'm very bad at sports metaphor. I'm probably going to mention a touchdown in the context of this baseball metaphor at some point because I can't keep my sports any straighter than I can keep myself. Whatever. I wouldn't give him another chance if I were you. There's got to be somebody out there who's more excited to spend time with you on your second date than they are to run out and meet up with other friends. And there's got to be guys out there who drink less than this guy does or don't drink at all and might be better fits for you. So unless he's super hot, unless he's super contrite, and unless he's the one making the effort here to set up the fourth date and is begging you for that fourth date and apologizing to you, the apologies embedded in the bag for what dates one, two, and three looked like, yeah, I wouldn't do any work. I wouldn't be texting him if I were you. I wouldn't be giving him another thought if I were you, unless he was doing the beg and he was doing the apologizing and he was doing the work to set up a fourth date and he was super hot and I want something to happen eventually. So yeah, you are young, hot, sober, and in demand. Go find somebody who is hot, Youngish, sober, and uh, demanding you and your time and respectful of you and your time and excited to be with you. More excited to be with you than they are to meet up with friends later or get smashed watching sports ball. Hi, Dan. I'm a 51-year-old gay male living in the Northeast. I came out my freshman year of college, and although I've had several boyfriends over the years, None have been more than a year, and I've never had a long-term relationship. Although I masturbate almost daily and am certainly interested in having sex, I have let fear get the best of me, and so I keep to myself. Fear of disease, fear of rejection, and fear of inadequacy. To add to that, I'm not really interested in casual sex. So I've had maybe three dozen sex partners in my lifetime. I definitely prefer to be in a monogamous relationship. Maybe I pick the wrong guys every time, but sex has not been fun. Due to my lack of experience, I'm not even sure if I prefer to top or bottom. 
I have bottomed before, but never topped. I've tried dating apps in the past with no luck. Recently, I decided to try again, and I've met a guy online who is my age and lives less than three hours away in another city. We have spoken at length on the phone several times, and we have just about everything in common. We share the same life goals, and I think he's really cute. I really enjoy talking to him and feel very comfortable with him. We're planning to have some video calls in the coming days, and then possibly I'll make a weekend trip to meet him in person. A little about him. He came out at 35 and immediately went into a 10-year relationship that was almost sexless. He's been single for five years and sexually active during this time. He prefers to bottom and has told me about the giant dildo that he can accommodate. I'm intimidated. I've shared an overview of my sexual past, hinting at my inexperience, but I have not explicitly told them that I've never talked. I'm embarrassed that I'm so sexually inexperienced at my age, but I'm not sure what to do to move forward in life. My ultimate goal is to get married and have fun fulfilling sex. I really like this guy and I want to see what will happen next. I know I can only move forward from where I am right now in life. But how do I walk through the fear to get to a better place? How do we fuck first if I'm not even sure what the fuck I'm doing? You talk about how little sex you've had and that the sex, when you have had it with people, hasn't been that great, hasn't been that rewarding, and you never really caught a groove. And then when you talk about what's missing in your life and what you'd like to have in your life, you don't talk about sex. You talk about a relationship. What you want is an LTR. What you want is that kind of intimacy and connection. And you think that the way to get there or a piece that must be a part of that is a strong sexual connection and a strong sexual connection is great. But there are a lot of people out there with loving, committed, intimate relationships that aren't the, the people in them or the relationship itself aren't very sexual, that aren't defined by a strong sexual connection. So, there are two different things that you want here. You'd like to, at some point in your life, experience good sex and be able to explore sex with a partner, a monogamous partner that you feel safe with and really discover finally who you are sexually. And you'd also like a committed, intimate, long-term relationship. And I think the best approach for you with this guy is to put all your cards on the table and be really honest He's telling you that he wants to be top, that he's a bottom. He's also telling you when he talks about that giant toy that he doesn't necessarily require dick to bottom, that he is one of those bottoms, one of those guys who wants to be filled up, and toys will do. All right, you may not be a very skilled top yet. You haven't done much topping, but you can certainly, with him leading and instructing you, learn how to stuff his ass in the way he enjoys having his ass stuffed with toys. And then, you know, this is all assuming that once you guys meet that you click and that's a big assumption. And I wouldn't, if I were you, make too much more of an emotional investment in this guy than you have already prior to this first meeting. But if after you meet and you click and you start doing the things that he's already told you that he's comfortable with, I don't think that he told you about those big toys because he doesn't want you to use them on him or doesn't want them incorporated into partner sex. I imagine he told you a prospective partner about those big toys expressly because he does want them to be a part of partnered sex. All right, well, tell him. Tell him you haven't done any topping. Tell him you're 
a little inexperienced sexually because you've always wanted sex in the context of a monogamous relationship and that's been hard for you to find and that you want to explore that with him. And that at least at first, when you guys are sexual, he'll have to take the lead. That doesn't mean he can't bottom. He'll have to take the lead. He'll have to show you what it is he likes and how he likes it done. And the pressure won't be on your dick because you can use his toys and you can use your fingers and use your tongue and you can roll around and you guys can get off together. And if you're stuffing his ass with toys and then there's a moment when your dick is hard and you're down, you can ask him to guide you in and to show you how he likes to be topped. And hopefully that'll be how you like to top or it'll be a kind of topping that you can grow into. And you'll catch a groove with him, assuming once you meet that you're into him, that he's into you, and that there is relationship potential here. But he's being really honest with you. He's a bottom. He likes big toys. He likes that filled up feeling. And he threw that out on the table. You need to be honest with him in return. Don't have a ton of sexual experience. You're anxious to get more and you're anxious for your sexual experiences in the context of a relationship to be about that connection. All right. There are things that you can connect over that don't require you to be a great or perfect or skilled or experienced at all top right out of the gate. He can show you his toys. He can show you how he uses them. You guys can masturbate together. And then two, three months down the road, when you're really good at topping him with those toys, with those dildos, you can, I think at that point, you'll find it much easier to make the transition confidently to topping him with your deck. All right, before we get to this week's listener response calls, let's read some Savage Lovecast listener tweets. Dr. Stacy Hannum tweets, Love the work Fake Dan Savage does to help destigmatize and normalize sex work. Episode 800 was fire on point discussing how sex work can offer valuable intimacy for those who are unpartnered due to death, aging, and being differently abled. Hashtag sex work is work. Hashtag Savage Lovecast. Thank you, Dr. Hannum. We didn't note that last week's episode was our 800th episode. It is a milestone. And in a little less than four years, assuming we're all still here in four years, we will plan something fun, maybe a live show for our thousandth episode. Josh Silverman tweets, yesterday, the drive time between the entrance to the Lincoln Tunnel in New York City and our exit off I-95 in Philadelphia was the same duration as one episode of the Savage Lovecast Magnum Edition. Congrats on episode 800, Dan, Nancy, and the tech-savvy at-risk youth. Thank you, Josh, and happy to be with you there on your drive. And finally, Dr. Jamie Bear tweets, I had a very hot, if weird, dream about fucking a guy in the communal showers on a cruise ship whilst fake Dan Savage shouted advice on sexual positions at me from the changing room. Really gotta stop falling asleep with the Savage Lovecast playing on my pillow speaker. Sexy dreams with a little sex advice coaching from a trusted source? That is not an argument for not falling asleep listening to the Savage Lovecast, Dr. Jamie Bear, but an argument for it. Anyway, whenever you choose to listen, thank you for listening, Dr. Bear, and I will see you in your dreams. All right, if you want me to read your tweet on an upcoming episode of the Savage Lovecast, be sure to include the hashtag Savage Lovecast. And a big thank you to everyone who posted about the Savage Lovecast this week to Twitter or Instagram or Facebook, or TikTok. We really appreciate those social media posts. They spread the word about the show. We are very grateful. And now, something else we're grateful for, listener response calls. 
Hi, Dan. I have a comment for the caller in episode 800 whose employee's master was feeding her at a work event. First, I would like to re-emphasize what you said about how when you work with people or you employ people, you enter into social contracts with them where you don't have to spell it out. But yeah, your master doesn't come to work events and feed you in public. And also you enter into contract contracts with people, which are agreements that say, I will pay you so-and-so amount of money for so-and-so's service. Um, Your personal life shouldn't interfere with your work. Um, What happens if her master decides, oh, I just don't want her to go to work for a week? Is the company going to have to deal with that? It's ridiculous. I know we're going through the great resignation right now where companies are having a hard time holding on to personnel, but we have to draw the line somewhere. And I think this is it. So you or human resources in your company, depending on how your company is structured, have to pull this person up short and let them know that this kind of thing is not going to fly. And if this is how they want to live their life, that's fine. They just can't live it at your company. Hi, I'm calling for the woman's sister from episode 800. She wants to break up with her boyfriend, um, but was feeling bad about it. And one of the things she mentioned was that he has an anxiety disorder and he needs a lot of support from her when he's having a panic attack. I'm a mental health professional and I treat patients with anxiety disorders. One really important part of treating anxiety is that the person has to learn that they can handle symptoms and anxiety and panicky feelings by themselves. If someone has a safe person that they always call when they need to be rescued from their anxiety, it ends up being really counterproductive and disempowering because they wind up feeling so dependent on their partner. um, They feel like the partner is the only thing that can help them survive their anxiety. So if you came into my office, even if you wanted to stay together, I would be counseling you that when you, quote, help him by calming him down, you aren't actually helping him, even though it might feel like that at that moment. So in your case, as you end the relationship, it might be helpful for you to remember that him learning how to care for himself, hopefully with the help of a good therapist or at least some good self-help books, is really going to be an important step in his healing. This is in response to the lady from episode 800 that's really into black girl magic. I'm a cis brown gay guy, by the way. I think you may be overthinking this and you just need simpler language to explain this to a future partner, which is just to say, you're really my type. It's vague because they don't know if that's because of their body type, race, hair, or whatever. But as they get to know you and your past, they'll be able to figure that out slowly. But that idea was already planted in their head, so it won't feel as icky. And we're going to leave it there. Got a question for next week's show or a comment about some of the advice I gave on this week's show? Can you do better? Use the voice memo app on your phone to record your question. We love your questions or your comments. We love those too. And email it to us at voicemail at savagelovecast.com. You can also call us at 206-302-2064. The Hump 2022 Opening Festival concludes this weekend in San Francisco at Victoria Theater, as well as in Portland at Revolution Hall, where I will be hosting all of this weekend's screenings. Once the opening fests wrap up, we'll tally the votes, award the Hump Awards to the winners of those Hump Awards, and then take the Hump 2022 Festival with all new films on the road to over 25 cities all through 2022. Visit humpfilmfest.com to get your tickets to a screening near you today. Also, the Savage Love Store has some new merch, including a cool GGG mug that'll let everyone know that you are good giving and game in bed and life. Go to savage.love to browse all the new items. Follow me on Twitter at FakeDanSavage. Follow Dr. Daniel Summers on Twitter at WFKA.com. 
R-S. And maybe you can tweet at him and ask him what his Twitter handle means because he won't tell The Savage Lovecast is produced every week by Nancy Hartunian. And me and the tech savvy at Risk Youth and Nancy will all be back at you next week on an installment of The Savage Lovecast. Thank you for downloading and please take care of yourself. Bye.